we're going to be in uh, Psalm 70 uh, tonight. Uh, this psalm uh, is entitled to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Uh, some versions say it's a song uh, to bring to remembrance. Um, some uh, versions actually say it's a psalm of memorial. Um, if you, uh, and it could be uh, more, I guess, toward that since it's almost the same, uh, almost verbatim, uh, Psalm 70 is as Psalm 40, verses uh, 13 through 17. Um, it's not clear, well, let me rephrase that. It's not clear to me um, exactly which one was written first, either Psalm 40 or Psalm 70, whether, you know, it was Psalm uh, 40 and for, for, in Psalm 70 they took part of that out as part of remembrance to sing separately or was it Psalm 70 and they added it in when uh, Psalm 40 was written. Uh, it's not clear enough to me to distinguish either way. Uh, but it is an interesting song uh, because there's a lot to be said of it. Uh, Martin Luther said this. He said, this prayer is the shield, spear, thunderbolt, and defense against every attack of fear, presumption, and lukewarmness, which are especially dominant uh, today. And I think that's a good representation of, of this psalm. Uh, it's only five verses. Um, we may be done at uh, 15 after 7, and we may not be done when class is over. Uh, this few verses is, is packed with, uh, seem like to me, a lot of, a lot of information uh, concerning it. Uh, but let's just start in Psalms 1. He says, Answer me quickly, O God. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Uh, there, there's a few things with this uh, to me. One is the different descriptions that David says here of God when, when he's, he's talking to God about making haste to deliver him. And he says it again, make haste. But the second time he says, if you notice, all capital letters, Lord, which is usually indicated what? Yahweh. Yahweh. Uh, he, he's, he's, to me, making it more personal, talking about the covenant God, the, the God of his covenant. He's, again, this is very personal to him. Um, and I read some different writings concerning this first part, and there was one that interests me. I, I don't... I kind of agree with it, but I agree with a different form of it. But it's uh, uh, from uh, uh, individual Morgan, uh, G. Campbell Morgan. And he said this, that such prayers were flawed in their understanding of God. It reveals a mistaken concept of God. God never needs to be called upon to hasten. He is never tarrying uh, or carelessly, uh, tarrying carelessly. In other words, his view is to pray like this, to sing like this, or to approach God like this is a flawed view of God because God never carelessly just takes his time in doing something. Um, and here's where I think I differ in what he says. I don't think it's a, a flaw. I don't think it's talking. The haste is not necessarily for God. I think the haste is for David. Um, what's going on in David, what he's remembering here, what he's facing here is a, is a, a very distinct um, instance that's very fast approaching to him. It, it's, it's a hurry for him. And I think in that hurry, he, he's, he's just demonstrating 
his dependence upon God, his need for God, and the urgency that he's facing it. Um, I don't think it looks toward God that, okay, some things God hurries up on, some God takes his time, some God, sometimes he just says, oh, I'll get to that in a minute. I, I don't think that's how this is approaching that. And it seems to me that's what he's, he's kind of saying, that it, it's a flawed view. And I think it is a flawed view if we think God operates that way. Um, I think it, it comes to, one, God, does he already know our need and know what's going on before we ask him? So he already knows the, the urgency of the matter uh, uh, to us. It it's, it's, comes back to the pleading to God for that urgency. I think it comes back to dependence upon him. I, I think it's the difference of how we're reacting when we're praying. Just, just take children, for example. If your children comes up and, you know, I, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, and can we tell the difference if it's a true urgency or not as a parent? There's something that's urgent to them that's not really an urgent need. Then there's some things, like if you've got a grandchild in Walmart and they're potty training and they say they've got to go to the bathroom, you better take that seriously, don't you? You know, that's an urgent thing. Uh, so we as parents know the difference if it's really, truly something urgent that, that needs to be addressed in that particular... Well, don't we think God does too? God, God understands that. God knows that. So it, it's, it's not about... Uh, uh, that we're thinking that God is just taking his time or not, I think it goes back to David of his understanding of God, but his understanding of his need for God. Um, so you, you see here in the very first, this urgent plea, this urgent circumstance, I think demands an urgent plea. And I don't know that we shouldn't pray to God like that a lot. You, actually read and I forgot who said it that we'll find a lot of times that God is a God of uh, how did he put it of nick of time and nick of time or last minute and some of the examples they were giving I, as I read them I, I didn't like what they were saying at the beginning but as I read I kind of got the the gist of what they were saying you, you take uh, uh, Abraham and his knife to Isaac you know, God stopped him right there at the last minute. You, you take uh, Israel and, 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 and leaving against the, uh, um, uh, uh, from Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. It's, it's like the last minute there. Uh, Jairus' daughter, you get just, and you could go through a list of things that seem like God is there just at the last moment. Um, and, and, and those are true statements, but I look at those, those things just like I look at this, God knows what we're going through, and everything God, I believe this is a true statement, everything God does would be for us, toward us, to teach us, to have a purpose for us, to have something for us. So in those moments, I think we need it to be to that point. Uh, I think so we can have dependency upon God. So we can, uh, you know, 
Does God need to be our last resort, our last response, or our first response? You know, and sometimes we can get that kind of confused. We go to God when there's no one else to go to. I think God is trying to teach us He's the one we need to go to because there's nobody else that can help like He can. That our dependency needs to be upon Him. So I think that's that's what He tries to teach during that. And I think that's what we see in this psalm. We see a when there's a sense of urgency. I think we see a, a sense of an urgent plea for God. So maybe some of these urgent matters that come upon our life is to teach us to go to God in an urgent manner. Uh, uh, you know, to express our urgency to Him. How important it is that, that uh, we, we know that God hears us and responds to us and, and is thinking of us and, and thinking of us in that urgent manner. Um, I, I can remember, you know, uh, we used to take uh, a lot of our uh, rolling stock, a lot of our the hearses and vans and things like that to a particular mechanic, and he always had a sign up above that says, just because it's an emergency to you doesn't mean it is to me. You know, what he meant is don't come in here yelling at me. I'll get to it when I can. Um, we can't look at God like that. I don't think God looks at us like say, just chill out. I'll get to it in a minute. I don't, I don't think it's in that that form of all. I think it's, it, it, it's urgent to us, and our dependency upon God is an urgent manner. And I think that's something that we need to, to recognize. But look at what that, that becomes in, in this psalm. That becomes, from an urgent manner, comes an urgent plea, comes a, uh, an urgent dependency upon God. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. He says, Let me be ashamed and confound, Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life, let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who says, aha, aha. So you see this urgent matter, it, it gets this urgent plea to God, but it's also this, this urgent dependency upon God to take care of the problem that we're having. The problem David's having here is his enemies. And he's saying, you know, uh, let them be ashamed. Let them be confounded who seek my life. They, they want to, some version says, they want those who want to destroy me. He says, they want to take my life. They want to destroy me. So I, I'm dependent upon you to, to take care of that. Now, when I read things like this, too, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile these things with Jesus saying, love your enemies, uh, Pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you. How do we reconcile David praying that God confound and, and make ashamed his enemies, those who want to destroy him, with what Jesus teaches there? Is it just we don't have the right understanding between the Old and New Testament? Is it there was a different way of thinking for the Old Testament than there is the New Testament? It was, it, was that David's understanding and Jesus brought more of another understanding to it? Or... Is David actually doing what Jesus taught and, and praying something good for their enemies? What better thing could happen is they be ashamed of what they're doing? Could that cause them to turn to God? You know, uh, stop what they're doing, confound what they're doing so it doesn't happen. They become ashamed of it. If they're ashamed of what they're doing, then maybe that might cause them to do something different. Maybe David is praying something good and it sounds like, uh, uh, vengeance or something to us. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? You think? I think it's always okay to pray, especially David's <clears throat> special case, because he's God's anointed. He might have just been against God already. But I think 
God destroy your enemies. Yeah. It, I think it's always God's always going to act righteously. Yeah. God's never going to, you know, destroy somebody and then think, well, why did you have to pray for me to destroy them? They were good. God's never going to accidentally destroy somebody who's good. So I think it's okay to pray both. Yeah. You know, and that you pray for repentance, that's a good way to get rid of an enemy. And if God gets rid of an enemy the other way, then he's going to get it right. Yeah. Know, well, uh, God says he's going to destroy his enemies. You know, if they don't change, you know, there's times that John's taught here just here recently and, and some other times that we see all through Scripture how, you know, their cup of wrath the cup of wrath is not yet full yet. But once it is, God is going to take care of that. Uh, I think David is, is how I see it, is David is just praying what he God has already said he's going to do to his enemies. David just has confidence that, okay, then... I'm at the point now where that needs to happen because here's what they're about to do to me. You know, if, if you're going to do this to your enemies, God, I need it. It's urgent to me. I'm, I'm in this situation. I was going to say that if you have a heart burn and say, Jesus, I'm going to pray for your enemies, well, is what Jesus said compatible with calling somebody a brood of vipers or mm. saying you're of your father, you know, the devil, who all he knows how to do is lie, or to call somebody a whitewashed tomb? I mean, right. Jesus said all of those things to different people. And so we're obviously talking about I tell you, if, if I've, and, and maybe you, you feel like we've got marred down in Psalms, I hope not, I hope you've got something out of this as we've been going through this, but one thing that I get out of it that, I, that has actually changed my prayer life after, after studying the Psalms, especially here, is I need to be more honest with God and more open with God with, with how I feel, with what I'm thinking, with what I'm going through. I know God knows it. I, I guess I need to just in my prayers for my own benefit to say it more. Okay, this is this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm facing. This is how I'm feeling. And and this, this my mindset right now is this is what I, I, I think needs to be done. And so I get that out, and then what happens? Then as I start doing that, it causes me to study more, and I'm seeing how, how God operates, and, and then it, 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 it's like it clears our minds, and it gives us a more clear thinking of of maybe what I need to do in these particular situations. And um, I, I think a sense of urgency isn't bad because it does bring more of a dependency upon God as it does here with David. He had a, a urgent plea because he had an urgent situation, and now he shows this urgent situation. It really shows his dependency uh, upon God. Um, and again, it, he says, Let them be ashamed and confounded, who seek my life, and uh, sound like the people he's talking about, I don't think they're ashamed of what they're doing. <laughs> I don't think they're ashamed for, for chasing after David. I don't think they're ashamed for wanting to kill him. I don't think they're ashamed of wanting to do something uh, uh, to a servant of God, and, and that's exactly what needs to happen. I mean, that's for their benefit. I think that's what needs to, to be done. Uh, Boyce said this, the kindest thing we can pray for people who do wrong is that their plans will fail, for it may be that in their frustration they will see the folly and true end of evil and be reached for God. And I think that's a, a, a pretty good statement. Um, because unless there's some... I mean, think about it. If, if there's no opposition, there's no uh, wall against what I'm doing... 
how am I going to know what I'm doing that is wrong? <laughs> you know, how, how, where's the incentive to change? Where's the incentive to repent? You know, we, we, and of course, everything's got to be done for the right motive and the right reasons and out of love. But if someone doesn't confront me with my sin, where's the knowledge of that or the recognition of that going to be? And I think that's where we see a downfall today uh, uh, steadily is this desensitizing against it. You, you know, it, it, it's wrong uh, to say that uh, you can tell somebody that, hey, this is sin, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, there all the things of, of culture that we see going on around us. We become the bad guy because we call that to attention, but it, the most loving thing we can do is to say, okay, here's where this is wrong because then there'll be no incentive to change if there's not. Uh, someone once said, uh, what's uh, more uh, devastating than no hope is false hope. <laughs> you know, uh, if, I, if I recognize I'm in a position of no hope, I want to do something to get me in a position of hope. But if I, someone, if I have false hope and I think what I'm doing is, is going to be hopeful for me, then there's no incentive to change, and, and I won't. I'm in a hopeless state and don't realize that I am. And uh, I, I think that's the... Uh, that's the great thing about God's word. You know, when that truth sets us free, that truth exposes, that light exposes. And even when we don't like what we see, and what we see, it may make us mad, it may make us frustrated, that it may make us sad, we may grieve. There's, there's this long process of, uh, of going through. I was talking with a gentleman today, and we were discussing some different things, and he's going through a situation with, uh, uh, someone that he cares about that uh, um, is going through a pretty devastating health issue. And uh, it's almost, you know, I, I was talking to him about it. We were talking about things of uh, on a spiritual nature, and, and I was asking him some questions, and I was trying to talk to him, to, you know, to help him and, and to see if there's, you know, can I come over and talk with both of you? You know, we were discussing things like this, and... And he said, "No, they're they're lashing out right now. Anytime I try to bring something like that up, they're they're." And he, he talked about some things. And I, my response to him was, "I think that's part of this process. You know, they're right now maybe for the first time coming to a realization of this is the situation that I'm in. It's bringing to light these things. And and I think just like we grieve the loss of a loved one." We can grieve our own loss like that and go through that kind of process of being mad and then in denial and all these things that that we may have to get through that brings us to the truth. But if someone doesn't bring that to us, that good news of the gospel, even though that good news can hurt to begin with, it is good news because it brings that hope. And I think we do have an obligation. And I think we do have a responsibility to do that. Um, and, and I see this in what, what David is doing, you know, even when he says this about, uh, about his enemies. Uh, let's look at verse 4. He says, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let those who love your salvation say continuously, Let God be magnified. So you see here, here's how we're seeing this process of this psalms. You've got the urgent need that brings this urgent plea, that brings this urgent dependency that turns into an urgent praise to God. Because see, you, you see this confidence of David 
and of, okay, here's what I need, here's what I'm pleading to you for, here's the situation I'm going through, and now he gives him, he gives him praise because I think David is confident that, that God sees this, that God knows this, that God is watching out for him. He said, let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say it continuously. This is in total opposition to the enemy, isn't it? He says, those who love your salvation are going to praise you. Now, there's people who love a lot of things. We may love our job. We may love uh, uh, the things that we do. We may love the pleasures of this world. We may, there's a lot of things that we may love, but if we truly love his salvation then we're going to praise him, aren't we? We're going to tell people about it. So David, in this urgent situation, still knows to praise God and how important it is to praise God. But he goes farther than that, and he says, Let those who love your salvation say continuously, Let God be magnified. Now, what does magnified mean? If you magnify something, what are you doing? Are you making it bigger? What's that? Your perception of it's bigger, right? It, like if you're looking at something in a magnifying glass, that thing doesn't become bigger, but it becomes bigger to you. It, it, it expands to what you uh, see it. And that's if we truly love his salvation, in other words, we're truly following him, we're truly trusting him, then what we're going to do is he's going to be bigger to us. Our perception of him is going to be bigger because he's going to be more in the forefront. He's going to move forward, not backwards and become smaller, he's going to become bigger in our perception because uh, we're following him closer. But we're also going to show that to the world. So how we react to situations in life, how we uh, go through the trials and troubles we go through, are we making God, per, uh, the world's perception of God smaller, or are we making it bigger? Are we bringing him to the forefront, or are we hiding him? Because of how we go through that situation. David says, as a Christian, we're going to bring him to the forefront. We're going to magnify him. We're, we're going to bring him just as close as we can. He's going to be, I mean, think about it. I can't make God any bigger, can I? I mean, he's the creator of the universe. What can I do that's going to make him bigger? But I can make him smaller in my perception if, if, if he doesn't mean much to me. I mean, think about it. When we become a Christian, what do we do? We, we put on Christ, don't we? We make ourselves smaller. What, what is it? Colossians 3? We, we're making ourselves smaller and making Christ more to the forefront. People see Christ instead of us. I think that's what David is talking about here. If we are truly praising God and, and loving His salvation, knowing what He did for us to bring that salvation, knowing what we've done to obtain that salvation, then the world is going to see Him, not us. So the trial that David's going through... The trial that, that David is facing, do you think anybody's watching David and see how he handles this? To see what he's going through? You know, to, to see if, if he's going to give up or he's not going to give up? To see what God's going to do or not going to do? I, I think they're watching him. So David says, I'm going to make him bigger. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to make what they see, they're going to see God, not me. They're going to see my dependence upon God, not my dependence upon myself. I mean, think about all the actions that we know of that David, that's recorded for us, that David did. David could have took a lot of matters into his own hands, and David didn't do that, did he? Why, why didn't he? Why didn't he kill Saul when he had the chance? 
the, the times he had the chance. Well, yeah, he, he's going to leave it to God. It, it, it's God. God's the one put him there. God's the one who's going to take him out from there. You know, if David, I mean, think about it. If David was the one to do it, who would have got the praise and glory and honor? Who would it have been about? It had been about David, not David the great king as a servant of God. It had just been David the great king. That, that, that's all that it would have been. And, and it's, it's not about that. No matter what I accomplish in this world, I accomplish it for the glory of God. You know, that's, uh, we talked about that over in the, uh, the fellowship hall about, you know, when you think about the purpose of the church, do you think about, is it evangelism? Is it, is it benevolence? Is it edification? Well, those are works of that. But our true purpose is to bring glory to God. And bringing glory to God by doing those kinds of things, those kinds of work. So it's what David is saying here. We, we magnify God. How do we do that? By bringing glory and honor to Him. The spotlight's on Him. It's not on us. Uh, so the perception of the world is when they see me go through good times, when they see me go through bad times, what are they seeing? Do they see God at all times? And that's another thing. When we pray to God, we see it as an urgent thing. Is it just when we're in trouble or is it through good times too? How urgent are our prayers if if uh, things are going great in our life? You know, how how is that on the forefront of us, our, 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 our closeness with God, our communication with God, or is it just when bad things are going on? Um, sometimes we only need God when we think we need Him, if that makes any sense. Because it is about us, it's not about Him. It's about what when we think we need Him or when we don't think we need Him. Uh, and I think David realized he needed him the whole time. Uh, his, his need for God uh, was never wavering. Though he did talk about himself being in the pit. He did talk about you know, God bringing him out. David realized there's times he got himself into things. There's times that circumstances got him into things. And, and I think there's those times he did recognize that. Let's look at verse 5. He said, Help quickly, O God, but I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. So we, he goes back and repeats almost what he was saying as far as the haste, but I think he does it in a little bit different way. He, he recognizes himself. He says, Help quickly, O God, but I am poor and needy. Um, so how, did, how, how do you think David is viewing himself here? Is he viewing himself, you know, I'm some great king, I don't need your help. I'm, I mean, look how he views himself. Um, I was thinking about this as I was thinking about uh, uh, John's series as he's starting with the Sermon on the Mound, especially the poor in spirit part of how we find true happiness in those, by being in those situations. Uh, and, and it's almost like it's a contradiction, isn't it? Okay, if I'm in these situations, I can't be this. You know, it's either one or the other. Uh, I'm happy when things are good, then I'm sad and frustrated, upset, you know, hurt when things are going bad. But if, if I truly have the relationship with God, I pour it all out to Him, I realize what my state is. My state is total dependence upon God and realize it's God that gets me through these things no one can take that away from me except for me and my actions so what other 
I can be happy in those situations, can I? Can't be happy about the situation, but I can be happy of how I am in that. I think this is another example of why uh, God didn't calm the storm when Peter got out of the boat. Because I think that would defeat the purpose of the lesson. I don't think it was about walking on the water. I think it was about keeping focused on Jesus, being able to do the things that he says we can do, focused on him, despite what's going on around us. The world's not going to stop just so we can live our Christian life, is it? The problems aren't going to stop. Heartaches aren't going to stop. Uh, the trials of the world, the, the persecution, none of that's going to stop and say, oh, wait a minute, I didn't realize you was having such a hard time as a Christian, Ronald. Let me make it easier for you. <laughs> it's not going to do that. I, I have to learn how to do that by living in, while living in this world. And, and David recognizes, he says, uh, help quickly, O God, but I am poor and needy. Make haste, O God. Then, he doesn't end on still pleading with God. He ends on, I think, his confidence of God. He says, you are my helper and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. You're my helper and my deliverer. Not my own abilities, which David had. You know, you can think back to Goliath. I don't think that's the first time he ever picked up a rock, do you? I, I, I think he knew what he was doing. But I think he was able to go out and do it because of his trust in God. And that's what he said about the bear and the lion. God was there then, God's still here now, it's no different. It doesn't matter what the giant is. It, does, it could be a bear, it could be a lion, it could be a giant, it could be a trial, it could be Saul, it could be Absalom, it could be any of these is David's giant. You know, we think about his battle with Goliath. David had a lot of battles with giants and giant situations. But it's his dependence upon God and recognizing who God is. And being able to communicate that to him. That's what is impressive to me is, is David's honest, open communication with God. And you can only do that with someone that you know, someone that you trust, and someone that you love, can't you? That's when you're honest with them. That's when you're open with them. You know, and, and we have to have that kind of relationship uh, uh, with God. That's why I like to hear, especially when... Uh, in, in our public prayers, when you get a young man just becomes a Christian and the first time he leads prayer publicly. Well, those are great prayers, aren't they? I, I think they're the most honest, the most humble, the most open, just, you know, uh, telling them, just telling it like it is, you know. You, you think about that. You think about, uh, I can remember going to camp one time. Uh, I don't even know who it was. You know, I went up there for family night. I forgot who it was. They said, prayed for dinner but they prayed said you know thank you for the rain even though we don't like it you know I mean that, that's pretty honest prayer isn't it you know I, I, I think that's what we have to be with God you know when you're shaking your head on prayer what you agree and disagree what you doing Jeremy <laughs> well <laughs> yeah you get well I think sometimes from from a young young person to as we get older, somewhere or another we leave that that pureness to our prayer voice and prayer thoughts. And what I mean by that, we 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 pray like we talk on the phone. You know, it's we can be in the worst mood, we can be fussing and yelling in the house and all this phone ring. Hello, you know, we're the most happy. Just like when we walk in the building, no matter what happens and goes wrong 
on the way to church, when you walk in the building, everybody's smiling. You know, you may look like you've just been went through a windstorm and a tornado, but everybody's smiling. You know, don't, don't act like something wrong went, went wrong. And I think sometimes we try to approach God like that. We try to approach God with, with that kind of facade, and we've got to know he sees through that. We, we've got to know that he knows who we truly are. He knows what we're going through. He knows our struggles. He knows when he's talking to me, there, there, there's different things that I deal with than Mike does or Titus does or Jimmy does, that, that those things can mean something different to me than it does to them. So there may be an urgency to me that may not be an urgency to them, but God understands it is. It's like Dave Ramsey says about marriage. If it's a 10 to your wife, it better be a 10 to you, even though it may be a 2. You know, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of sense in that. If, if it's a problem for them and it's a problem, it, it's something that bothers them, it should bother you so you can help them through it. And I think that's the way it is with God. If, you know, it, it may, what's a 10 to me may be a 2 to Titus, but God knows it's a 10 to me. He knows what I'm going through. He knows my experiences, my abilities, how, how I deal with things, how I maybe don't deal with things, and, and God knows that to best help me through that. And I think it, that's where it comes back to, to once again, that open uh, communication. Uh, any thoughts before we kind of turn our attention to some things about Jesus in this, this song? Any final thoughts? There's just a few things here that I, I, I thought of. When you think of an example... When it comes to some of these things that, that David said, just take, for example, verse 1. He says, make haste to help me, O God. Uh, I think Jesus is, is one of the greatest examples of one who relied on God, the Father, for help. Uh, you think of John uh, 8 and 28. Notice it said, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself but as my Father taught me, I speak these things to you. You know, Jesus realized he didn't do... When, when you think about that example, he left. And, and think about what he said and how he taught that. He says, I don't do anything of myself. Everything I do, I speak these things. Uh, uh, but as my Father has taught me. What, what great example of, of relying on God, of, of, of seeing Jesus teaching those around him, everything I'm doing, I was taught by my father. Everything I'm doing is because of my father. And I think that's a great example that we can learn as we see here from verse 1. What about uh, uh, verse 2? He says, let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Uh, Jesus is one whose enemies were ashamed and confounded, wouldn't they? I mean, you think about all the enemies that Jesus had that led him to the cross... Think about, uh, just think about the, the victory, I guess, they think that they, they had got when they didn't. You know, you think about, oh, we, we've got him now. Think about what they did and, and then everything that happened after that. Uh, Jesus is probably the greatest example there is of, of confounding and, and making a shame of his enemies because they didn't accomplish uh, what they thought that they were going to accomplish. Um, and then also, uh, verse 4, let God be magnified. I don't think there's any greater example uh, than Jesus of God being magnified. In Colossians 1, in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible, 
uh, uh, God, the firstborn over all creation. So what, what is it saying here that Jesus did for God? He made God visible, didn't he? Notice what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he's the image of the invisible God. It's like they're saying, okay, God's in the abstract. He, you know, yeah, we've been taught this. We've been seeing this. Now they're seeing it. He, 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 he magnified. Now you're seeing God. No one brought forth God more uh, than Jesus did. 1 John 1 and 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. You know, when you think about the word, John 1 and 14, that word became flesh and dwelled among us. Um, uh, what Jesus did to magnify God, once again, I believe is one of the greatest examples. John 1 and verse 18 says, no, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You know, that, that's what Jesus' enemies wouldn't grasp. It, it, is the fact, there they were presenting this image of God. And the image that they were presenting was a false one, wasn't it? Jesus said, what you're presenting is not your whitewashed tombs. You're dead man's bones. You're not what God is. You're not that representation of that. That's what it's become to you. You know, that's why many times through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus saying, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You know, you take this moral law, as John has said many times, this moral law of God has always been the same. What Jesus is telling them, your interpretation, your twisting of it, this is what you've heard, this is what it is from the beginning. This is what it is. So he, he's magnifying God. He's bringing God to the forefront where they have made God small because they like standing on the street corners. They like hearing people hearing their big words. They like people knowing that they were fasting. They like to hear that money clink as they throw it in there so people could see it. They wanted people to see them. And Jesus said they're going to get their reward. Their reward is the praises of men. What you're looking for is to bring glory to God, to magnify Him and bring Him to the forefront. And that's what Jesus did. Uh, John 14 and verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? You know, Jesus is saying to them, you know, how, how can you say this? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, shouldn't we be able to say that? When, when the world sees us, that light that they see, that, that body of Christ that we put on, when they see us, the things that we do, the things that we say, should they see us or should they see uh, God and His Word? That's what we should do is, is magnify that. I mean, it's like, remember in, uh, oh, let me think. Can't think on my feet. John 6 and 66, when it says, Some turned and went no more with him. Remember, Jesus asked the question to the disciples, Will you turn and go? Will you go with them too? Remember what was said to him? Where are we going to go? <laughs> Who else has the words of life? We, we don't have anywhere else to turn. So you see Jesus showing that example of their, their dependence on God, that, that bringing God to the forefront. That urgency of God, that uh, of, and you live that way, how the enemies are going to be ashamed. Jesus, I think, is the perfect example of these things that we're seeing here 
uh, with David in Psalm 70. So I, I, I just want to give that at the end just kind of something to, uh, to think about that, that uh, I was thinking about it. I was, I was looking at this. Any final thoughts about this?